Star Trek Discovery, Season 2, Episode 13, Such Sweet Sorrow, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. And now, here is the President and Prime Minister of a land where snark would never be against the law. In fact, it's mandatory. Jessica Lees and Mike Bloom. Hello, Mike. Hi, Jess. I am so happy that we made that the very first rule. Uh, it's like a nega footloose in how we're essentially allowing Snark to run over the land because, yeah, I was hoping, you know, that Zahians are not our prime audience because if so, I do not think we would ever be allowed within the gates of the planet considering how Snark filled this, basically the entire internet is. I guess this planet has advanced to a level where Snark isn't necessarily inherent within their general discourse or maybe tilly has encouraged poe to become just a huge dictator over her planet and rule them with an iron fist who's to say but yeah that, that line definitely stuck with me as well yeah boy that that eight minute short treks really changed the trajectory of poe's life i mean you i saw that though because i mean i watched the short trek shortly after re-watching the episode i don't know if you did as well but poe is completely different between the time we see her in the short trek and when we see her on Star Trek Discovery. On the short trek, she's a bit feral. If you remember, she has like the Predator-esque cloaking on and she's like, you know, she has those weird uh, predatory spikes. And even when she starts talking to Tilly, she's coming off like a teenager. She's petulant, she's impetuous, and, you know, eventually she comes around on Tilly. But I feel like when the like post-Tilly Poe is now in the same line as Tilly. She's a big goofball. She loves ice cream, and she is making all these, ironically enough, snarky remarks that are against snark. I mean, I guess an experience can really change a person, but maybe the power has uh, caused her to lighten up a bit as well. But yeah, Poe's Poe's going through a lot of changes. Yeah, maybe the rule is that um, it's not that snark is against the law. It's that only the queen is allowed to snark. Mm, I Yeah, I, that's it's sort of like the emperor has, you know, I guess in this case, maybe the, the emperor can only wear clothes. <laughs> Everyone I, else has to be naked. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but not the naked like you think you have clothes on, but you're actually naked. So and I, I guess that now we have two short treks down, right? We have... Brightest Star, and we have Runaway checked off. And we have made assumptions, and the fan base has made assumptions as well, that Calypso might be addressed in some way, shape, or form, especially since Discovery is going into the future. But I see no sign here of our old friend Harry Mudd. Jess, could he be officially off Discovery? That is a lot of stuff to pack into a final episode if Harry Mudd does indeed make an appearance next episode. So I'm going to say that was just a one-off and we might see him again at some point, but I cannot imagine a final episode for this season that involves Harry Mudd in any way, just because look at all the other loose ends we have to tie up. Yeah, there's a whole field full of ropes right now that we essentially need to tie up before we leave it for I don't know, a certain portion of time. It makes me sad because, you know, he produced probably my favorite short trek in terms of quality and aesthetic, but it also is probably the most separated from the rest of the Star Trek canon. So I could understand maybe they could have brought Mud in in the first half of the season where it felt much more episodic in Story of the Week rather than an overarching arc. 
But yeah, I agree. Now is definitely not the time, unless it turns out that the person sending the signals was Harry Mudd trapped in the distant future. <laughs> uh, I think that it's safe to say that Rain Wills will not be uh, having his presence graced on Star Trek Discovery, at least this season. No, but I certainly hope we see him again in subsequent seasons. And, you know, everybody's getting a Star Trek spinoff these days, so maybe there's going to be a whole, like, Mud series. I'm, I wouldn't be mad at that. Maybe I, I'm, I would be <laughs> fine if we did, you know, Short Treks is coming back. If we did another Mud-based Short Treks, you know, I feel like if we live in the 15-minute-at-a-time installments, that might be the best place. Uh, and maybe... You know, we have yet to see what fruit these other spinoffs will bear. Maybe that's what, uh, you know, Alex Kurtzman and CBS will realize as well, that not every series necessarily needs the grandiose scale that Discovery provides. I mean, I don't know if they're crafting whole replicas of the Enterprise bridge uh, for all these other series, too. I wouldn't be putting it past them, if we're being honest here, because this was... This is pretty crazy. That was pretty epic, um, what they have done here and that Enterprise Bridge. We better be seeing it again because it was it was so sexy. Oh, my goodness. This was Star Trek porn at its finest, Jess. I mean, even the small details, like we saw a bit of the red-orange motif when Michael went over to the Enterprise to visit Spock's quarters uh, in the very first episode, but between... The hallways and the turbo lift, which I believe, did they go back to the uh, the original TOS method of like the weird handles they had to use on the turbo lifts to make them operate? And then when Pike crossed that threshold and we heard that familiar whistle tone, uh, I just knew that this was going to be a perfect blend of new and old. And it really is. Uh, I know that there's been some interviews that have come out with a uh, the, des- the production designer, Tamara Deverell, about what was probably her biggest undertaking this season, which was essentially... Hey, recreate this immortal TV show set, but also make it new enough for the 21st century. And I feel like she was really able to straddle both of those areas really, really effectively, both mirroring the actual structure of the Enterprise Bridge, complete with like the steps down into the main count, uh, main console and captain's chair. But they were able to update it with, you know, futuristic, uh, futuristic consoles and a whole lot of shine jest. This scene Felt like it got buffed right before Captain Pike came on. It's so amazing to me that they're able to preserve the spirit of the original series and the original Enterprise Bridge and yet not make it feel like it was cheap and cheesy and retro. It was just beautiful. Like mm-hmm. I looked at that and I was like, oh, give me, give me so much more of this. Yeah, it, it reminded me a bit, or actually it was a bit disparate, from the episode of Star Trek The Next Generation when they uh, find Scotty in stasis and he has that scene with Picard <laughs> where he's on the holodeck of like, I don't belong on the, on your ship, I belong on my ship. And he's in the, the holodeck version of the old Enterprise bridge. And it's like, you can tell that was even, you know, 30 years later. And it's like, uh, that thing's showing a bit of cobwebs. And so I think Disco, especially considering how far technology and visual effects have jumped forward since even Next Generation, did a great job of really making everything look shiny and futuristic. I mean, this is one of Starfleet's flagships, so much so that it sat out the the war to make sure it didn't get a dent on it. So, I mean, I could honestly stare at pictures of this all day. I will say that people on the Star Trek Reddit uh, did 
it did sort of put more matte finishes on the floor and some of the surfaces to make it seem a little bit less shiny, <laughs> uh, to not make it seem like you're in a hall of mirrors. But if that's a minor quibble, I, I think there's really not much else to complain about with the design of this. This is incredible. I very much liked the thread I read on Reddit about um, adding wall-to-wall carpeting on the bridge and then downgrading control to power the Roombas. Yeah, I mean, that thing's always going to need to be consistently clean. Uh, I think it makes sense. And you know what? Roombas are weird as a concept, but, I mean, you you can overpower them. I say before Roombas, I don't know, uh, end up overriding and forming uh, Skynet and taking over the world. But to the point you made before, Jess, I mean, this was such an uh, – there's probably such a huge undertaking for the entire crew. I mean, we got to see more of this, right, besides this episode and the next one. I'm not saying let's go for a Pike spinoff as much as I love Anson Mount, but do you think that we're going to see the Enterprise in more varieties in the future of Discovery, considering how much work they put into building this one set? Well, I certainly think next season we are going to get at least some cameos from Anson Mount. So he's been so tremendously popular and the character is so well written. And I think it would be a shame. Also, it's a shame to cast Rebecca Romaine and have her show up for five minutes twice. Yeah. There's a universe they're building to some purpose. And I cannot imagine it's just going to hover out there in space and never show its face again. Yeah, I mean, I uh, come from the world of theater where that was very much like, let's build these big grandiose sets that'll be used for a weekend and then get taken down and, you know, th- a bunch of a bunch of plywood will get thrown into the shop for the next show. So I-, I would hope that it doesn't end up getting scrapped in the future because, selfishly, that does mean more, Captain Pike. And I will say, you know, we're not saying completely goodbye to him in this episode since he'll be in the next episode, but I honestly feel like Search Discovery has garnered a lot of polarizing opinions, but I honestly feel like the great unifier, something that everyone who watches Star Trek Discovery can agree on, is that Anson Mount might be the best character in the first two seasons. And it's sad that we're going to lose him. You know, it was officially confirmed a few weeks ago that him and Rebecca Romain, who did not make her second appearance, everyone kind of just scratched their head and said, okay, fine, number one's not going to be on the show anymore. But he officially confirmed he will not be back in a main character capacity for season three. I think you make a good point about cameos, but it was nice to see number one back here. And she's uh, she's into totally like exhibiting pit my riding all the shuttlecraft aboard the uh, aboard the Enterprise was just outfitting it with all this weaponry while Captain Pike was farting around on Discovery. Yeah, well, I think that raises an interesting point that I definitely wanted to bring up. And maybe this might even be the main thesis statement of my podcast this week. The super sexy Enterprise is clearly supposed to distract us from the fact that not very much actually happened in this episode. This was a setting up the dominoes episode. We charged a suit. We made a plan. We said goodbye to everyone. The end. We really said goodbye to everyone. This was a very character heavy episode which was a bit different for discovery considering that it's weird to say it's not a very character heavy show but i think the structure is so inherent as opposed to other series in the franchise where it doesn't really focus so much on like hey here's an episode about what a character does in one day this is more about how do the characters serve the plot and react to the actions around them 
I completely agree with you, especially the way that it ended. I was like, okay, we're going to end on that. And people would be confused if you didn't know that this is part one of a two-part finale. And the story behind this is that Star Trek Discovery Season 2 was actually supposed to be originally 13 episodes. And uh, Such Sweet Sorrow was supposed to be one big finale, much like the season one. Is somebody superstitious? Yeah, I mean, it could be. CBS was just like, uh, if you could just do the production order from 12 to 14, that'd be ideal. But otherwise, we'll extend you out to 14 and so they decided, like, okay, great, this way we don't need to cut down, you know, between the emotional stuff from the first half, and I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of plot and battle if the next time on is any indication, there's going to be a lot of pew-pewing going on in the second half. But from that perspective, in, in a perfect world, they would have put this back-to-back as one big episode. I do feel like things are a bit lost in now us having to wait a week to find out what exactly happens on a binge. This is probably going to work out much better because you can watch the episodes one right after the other, but yeah, a little weak sauce to, uh, to leave things on. And I totally agree that when you look at what actually happened for such a plot heavy show, it was okay. They decided a course of action. There were a couple of little twists that ends up with nearly all of our main characters back on the bridge of discovery, assumingly sacrificing their lives by traveling into the future. But Outside of that, uh, no big rug pulls as of yet. Yeah, and that tracks with 100% with what I was assuming while watching this episode. It felt so much to me like the first half of a two-parter, and I thought Mm -hmm. maybe that was just due to the less episodic nature of this show. I do think that Discovery in many ways has been built as a show that holds up to a binge. In a way that I think a lot of Netflix shows are now being written and produced. Like, you know, we've talked about on this very podcast network, we've talked about how Orange is the New Black, for instance, is a show that everybody cares about for two weeks out of the year and then completely forgets exists. Mm, Yeah, it's true. And I guess, you know, it's it's also an unfortunate disadvantage. I mean, it's it's Star Trek Discovery is really setting into the peak TV format of condensing from 26 episodes down to 14 or 15 like you would have in a usual Star Trek series. And there are advantages and disadvantages in that. You don't feel, especially from a from a, uh, from a serialized perspective, 26 episodes in a season is way too long. But it does feel like we're losing out on moments to breathe. This felt like we were able to take big, heaving breaths before we jump in. But it's something that, especially like... I don't know about you, Jess, the end of the season completely snuck up on me. And maybe it's because the second half of the season was really go, 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 go in particular that it feels weird to really, you know, almost hit free fall before we do one final push into the end of the season too. Yeah, it was a very different way of storytelling from what I'm used to out of this show. Like there was nothing truly bonkers. There was no like far out in left field fan theory that turns out to be 100% true. And they hit a couple of marks, like they actually leaned into a couple of things that we have joked about on this podcast, so that was great. Like, for instance, talking extensively about the fact that Michael Burnham is now resigning herself to getting into the time suit, going into the future, and leaving the signals, a la Bill and Ted. Yes, that is very true. I totally forgot that we referenced that. Yes. And I I almost feel like some of it feels like it's 
fan servicey shout outs, but this episode was just, it felt to me like it's just sort of, if we had more episodes like this, like if we had maybe not a 26 episode season, but if we had two or three more episodes to play with and we were able to take some more breaths, this would feel a little bit less like hyperventilating. Mm, yeah, exactly. Because then you just get yourself worked up. And it's one of those things, the Pike final speech to the crew, uh, first off, very Wizard of Oz, basically like, yeah. Saru Crow, I'll miss you most of all, basically. But it reminded me a bit of my quibbles with the Arium stuff earlier on in the season, which is, you know, he goes around, he's like, ah, yes, Detmer and Owe and Reese. Oh, how could I forget you? And I kind of wish maybe if they added two or three more episodes, we wouldn't necessarily get to know more about these characters. But I will say what's lacking for me right now, I feel like our main cast of five or six characters are fantastic. They come from such different backgrounds. They approach things so differently. They have such unique worldviews, and the show's done a great job with that. But there's still a bunch of randos. And I understand what the show is trying to do and really having Pike call them out for what they do as characters and who they are and what they mean to him. But I'm still sort of saying, who are they? I don't know if Discovery Season 3 is going to bring it up, but I do wonder if they have more time to marinate, to your point. Uh, you know, that's what Next Generation was able to do with, with Chief O'Brien, for example, that was able to segue him into going onto Deep Space Nine. I, I would hope that in the future we get at least a little bit of stuff from your Detmers and your Reese's. Now that Commander Nan's on board as the tactical officer, maybe we'll get some more stuff from her. That's sort of maybe number one on my wish list for season three. And I just think that as powerful and emotional as they were going for with Pike's speech to his crew at the very end, it fell a little flat for those reasons. Well, yeah, that and the recorded messages also fell flat for that same reason. And I think this was something I did want to talk about. Like, are these family farewell scenes and this, like, impassioned Pike addressing each individual member of the crew, is that really earned based on the amount of information we've been given about the B-Cast? And I would argue no. Mm. And it, I'm not sure. I think maybe the difference is that we don't have those extra episodes to play around in. So we have focused so much on the trajectory of Michael Burnham that we don't have time to organically get to know anybody who's not Michael Burnham. I mean, so we would be watching like you can name four or five B cast members. Like you've got Barkley on on Next Gen who gets a couple of his own episodes, but we really don't see much of him. And you get characters like Lita and Rom and even um even the guy um Enrique, the guy that was friends with O'Brien that had like three episodes where he had four lines apiece and then he died and you felt really bad about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I wonder if, I mean, I don't know if it's actually, it might not be a thing about airtime as well, because Jet Reno, this is what, the fourth episode she's been in, and she's already, in my mind, an infinitely more interesting character than anybody on the bridge, just because of the unique perspective that she brings in and how we'll we'll see her involvement as well. You know, we, we wonder where this, why the signals happened. And I'm becoming more and more convinced, Jess, that the first signal was just to pick up Jet Reno because it seems like from her handling, <laughs> handling the time crystal, she has a larger involvement in all of this. And yeah, I see your point about the, uh, like basically back in the survivor OG days when they would like leave messages on a sprint phone to give to their loved ones in the game. That's what this really felt like. It was cool to see, 
people's families, especially even like uh, Stamets. I didn't realize he had a sister. I want to know who Tazzy is for Detmer. But I mean, have do you though, Mike? Do you really? This sounds like an interesting nickname. Uh, and of course, it was also a nice callback to Runaway as well with Tilly having a even an awkward one sided conversation to her mother, who it's clear they don't see eye to eye. But the thing that I feel like I have a minor quibble with is that with these characters between this and the speech, the show is doing a lot of telling to sort of catch us up on why these characters are important. And I would love the show. I would love the show to show. And maybe we'll get it next time. It seems like they are going to be in for a lot of flying across the bridge soon to come if the crystal is to be believed. But yeah, I think that it's cool to get some development from them. What did you make of their decision uh, the sort of like I'm Spartacus moment where Tilly brings Michael to a good group of them who said, yeah, we're all going to go into the future with you, even if it means, you know, possibly leaving this time behind forever. I loved that. Like, I thought that was maybe one of the only real moments we've gotten where it hasn't been like, now you must know everything about this character and who they are. And we're going to just dump all this information on you. This felt a little more organic. And I think Certainly in other Star Trek series, if a moment like that occurred and it would be like Riker and Data and Jordy all standing there in a row and we'd be like, oh, so it's all of the A-plot people and like, where are the randos? And here we had some randos and we mm-hmm. even gave the randos lines and I think that was okay. That was good. And I feel like I need I need more of like more seamless integration in that manner because I think people that I think characters that would volunteer for a duty like this, it says a lot about who they are as a character and immediately off the bat you know a little bit more about them just by virtue of the fact that they're there doing that thing. I do agree that I think that speaks towards the decision that Pike made in the last episode, which we both talked about was so powerful about how Starfleet is about sacrifice and the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. So I could understand why they did it I mean, from a story perspective, I thought it could have been more fun to have Michael go by herself. Or I thought, Jess, one particular person would have been the prime person to drive a ship into the future with a very small chance of coming back. But that one person, ironically enough, was the one person who stayed behind. (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, But again, I think there's an element of self-sacrifice in there. The, The... I think Ash Tyler would very much like to be on this ship on this mission with everybody, but he recognizes that he has a unique duty to Section 31 and to Starfleet. Yeah, though I do wonder, like, could he have just sent Giorgio back in his place? I don't know. I just feel like I feel bad for these people's families. Maybe that's me being overly sympathetic. And like Saru said, you know, when they made a commitment to Starfleet, their families understood that maybe this meant them possibly losing their life in the line of duty. This is a very odd line of duty, but I guess it falls under that category. But I feel bad that they would just never see them again. This is callous to say, does Ash Tyler really have anybody besides <laughs> Michael Burnham? Laurel said, we cool. The son said, I'm cool. Let me be, and I'll be an old man by the next time you see me. Like, he's a total loner. I feel like he could totally go on this quasi-suicide mission, and people would respect it. Yeah, I think I would have respected it, but... I think he also, I think his greater duty is not even just to Starfleet, but to Section 31, because he's like the only good guy left in Section 31. It's like him and Giorgio. And do you really ever 100% trust Giorgio? No, not really. 
Yeah, uh, well, I, she doesn't like ice cream, so I really can't trust her. Yeah, well, it could be one of those things, and I wish that they had lampshaded this a little bit harder. Like, oh, we don't have ice cream in the Prime Universe. <laughs> we eat from the hollowed-out skull of a Kelpian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, oh, wait, you guys don't put radishes on your ice cream? Oh, gross. Like, how, how do you eat this without radishes on it? Oh, my God. No, the, it's a true mirror universe because they don't eat ice cream. They only eat Froyo. That's the only accessible option. Oh, or maybe maybe like ice cream is like the thing that the that the hashtag basic girls eat. Mm, or maybe it's only Dippin' Dots. Oh, oh God. That's the worst. That's the darkest timeline, Mike. It's the ice cream of the future, Jess, for a reason. Oh, oh God. That's, that's, that, that's, that's grim. I mean, oh. I will also say, uh, if Control wanted to take over the universe, uh, I'd say Dippin' Dots is a good place to just put some nanobots in, because you really can't tell the difference. Yeah, nanobots look exactly like Dippin' Dots. That is a very good point. Yes, uh, I think that now I've realized that Control might have just been assimilating its way into all malls in America for the past 30 years or so. Oh, talk about a dystopia. Oh, you drag Dippin' Dots into it, it's like, oh, wow, that's like, I'm ready to go to the Hunger Games now. I have a I have a thought about, you know, Ash Tyler at the very last second on the transporter is like, uh, BT Dubs probably gotta go run off and do something. Bye. Uh, <laughs> I, have a th- I have a thought about who it is, but do you have any ideas about where he might be going, assumingly in the finale? Well, who does Ash Tyler have to your previous point? Yeah. Uh, he's going to go talk to Lorel, obviously, because he has like three numbers in his phone book. Yeah, this is um I'm I'll compare this to a game of a Game of Thrones thing. So tune out for the next minute or so if you don't want spoilers on that, but this is very much going to be like the battle at the wall where uh it's going to be like Section 31 versus Starfleet and Starfleet's losing and then here comes the <laughs> Stannis Baratheons of the Klingons just over the hill slaying them all and being able to uh, to overtake Section 31. Yep, it's it's absolutely like every penultimate season episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah, or it could be, uh, you know, it, the uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings, and here comes Gandalf in the form of Lorel with the the Klingon forces to swoop down and kill all the orcs, uh, the assimilated orcs. Yeah, that is. I think that's a hundred percent how this ends up. I mean, you have to imagine so because they're surrounded though. It is fun to note, and this is very, like, Wrath of Khan, that from the diagram we saw, Jess, they're only surrounded on two planes. <laughs> yeah, we gotta, like, flip it to the Z-axis. Yeah, exactly. Like, they just go bloop, and especially since they have that spore drive, it'd be pretty easy to do. Yeah, well, can I ask you something, Mike? And maybe this is something that, maybe this is something I'm missing, but they have a spore drive. Why couldn't they just have spore jumped to somewhere really, really, really far away that control can't get to? Like all of a sudden time doesn't matter and like everything is a 45 minute drive away like they're in L.A. or something. <laughs> well, listen, it'd be much harder if, if it was like they were in L.A. They'd face a lot of space traffic in uh, in the middle of the mycelial network. It's always clogged. I mean, it's a good point. And like, I mean, there's a couple of questions behind that. A- where can the spore drive jump to? You know, if they can only jump within the Milky Way galaxy, for example, there are a limited number of locations. And I guess where they were getting at, and Ash Tyler even makes the point that you made before when Michael's like, uh, this is futile. I'm going to have to do this plan and sacrifice myself. And he's like, no, spore drive, come on. But I guess where their logic is coming from is no matter where they go, 
control is always going to be there. Granted, this entire episode was basically them waiting for control to come to them. And I think at this point they said there's more pa- there's more power in turning around right now and facing our enemies than to just keep running, keep possibly depleting our resources to get to a point where they could corner us. And maybe at that point they will have taken over all of Starfleet. You know, our subspace com- uh, communications are already disabled. So I agree that I think the safer route would be to just keep on jumping and, you know, function as a, a Harry Mudd-esque figure constantly on the run. But at the same time, I wonder if they're sort of feeling that's not what Starfleet does and they decide to put on their big brave faces. Yeah, that makes some sense. And the other thing that I guess I I would liken this to is sort of like if the Enterprise disappears and runs away from the Borg, then the Borg just assimilates everybody. And so they have to face the Borg and battle them. So it's it's kind of the same deal. It's like mm. the longer you give control, like the further you run from control, the more time you give them to get more powerful. Yeah, that totally makes sense as well. That, you know, they've already taken over Section 31. It seems like, as control alluded to beforehand with Leland, they have the ability to assimilate themselves into the heads of Starfleet, and that can promptly disseminate out basically everywhere. This would be a way to, you know, promptly cut off the limb before it gets too gangrenous, though it seems like they're going to have to need a little bit of help, and they also are depending on what the Enterprise basically holding them off for now while Discovery goes through this pretty ridiculous plan. Yeah, it's, but that's all they got left is ridiculous plans. Yeah, that's true. It actually has been, uh, for as much as people talk about, you know, modern day TV is like, well, they, they, their mission succeeds at the end of every episode. Discovery's coming off a string of failures, it seems, between, you know, losing Gabrielle Burnham, the time crystal getting destroyed, them, you know, them basically losing all of Section 31 to control. They desperately need a win, so much so that they come up with this crazy idea where Michael Burnham is going to, since apparently this time suit is just basically coded to the Burnham DNA, she's going to get in the suit and basically uh, serve as bait for Discovery to lead it into the future, and hopefully it'll be at a time where Control can't get to it, and since they can't destroy it, it'll just sort of hang forever, and Michael Burnham might as well if uh, she doesn't find a way to get back. Yeah, but you have to think, just because we are coming up on the last episode of the season, it almost, the fact that we have, what, 45 to 55 minutes to tie this all together, you have to imagine it's going to succeed and they're going to find a way around all of these impossible other things. It almost saps the tension from it for me because I know that they're going to end up okay at the end of the next episode, but... The only tension left is in how they're going to get there and do that. Well, on that note, I will say that I agree. I think they're going to be able to evade control for now. But I wonder if the big twist, the big bonkers thing that you're waiting for at the end of the season is that they go into the future, but they can't come back. And that could be a really talking about untied knots. That could be a really interesting way for the show to sort of have its kick and eat it too by saying hey, we were, we were able to embrace the original series canon, but we don't want it to be too tied into that. So we're going to put Discovery now and set it in the very, very distant future. As it try, It's a little bit of Voyager-esque as it tries to basically find its way back home. And then we'll be able to 
promptly tie up that cannon and say, okay, that's done. Now we're dealing with a completely different tie with a completely different ship. Oh, I, I totally love that. I, I think it would be great even if they just spent the whole next season in the future. But I think it's great if they can't ever get back because that that ensures that the timeline we know stays pretty intact without having to retcon everything. It really takes away the challenge of that particular storytelling device. And it also helps explain away why all of this technology looks so much better than stuff that happens 200 years from now on their timeline. Yeah. We can, we can be futuristic and have it not feel like TNG is a downgrade because we're far in the future from that. And we have new people to meet. We don't know, like, where is Starfleet? What is everything like in the future? Who are you going to run into out there? There are so many big question marks that you could answer and a lot of fun you could have in that universe. Yeah, I think the upsides greatly overweigh the downsides, which the only downside is that you don't get fun little Easter eggs from the original series like we even saw in this episode, as we mentioned before. But it really could be a lot of fun. You know, this show is a lot focused around mysteries. They could solve mysteries of like, what does the universe look like now, especially if they change the timeline? I think it could be a new way to put these characters in situations you are trimming the cast down a little bit. You know, there's not going to be random people coming in through shuttlecraft. So I think that could be a way to really focus on our core ensemble. And it's something that Star Trek hasn't really done before. They haven't really approached the distant, distant future and what that looks like. And that also ties up the nice plot hole of if this spore drive was such a big thing, why didn't it exist in any other Star Trek series? Well, because the only ship that had the spore drive in it is now thousands of years in the future. Yeah, I think... I think no matter what happens in the next episode, I think it puts a period on the end of the sentence that is the spore drive. I think we figure out one way or another, like, I think we take the ship out of the equation. Whether everybody is still on it is another guess, because then again, that ties into Calypso. But I think we have to say, okay, we don't have spore drives anywhere else because something happened to that ship, whether it got shipped off into the future and disappeared forever or something else. Mm. On that note of Spore Drive, I will say, again, one of, as much as I may have a problem with, uh, you know, the fact that this first half of the episode really does a lot of setup rather than a lot of action, I will say, I guess one of the advantages of not putting it as one episode is because I really feel like if this had to be condensed into one episode, we would not have get, gotten that Stamets and Colbert scene. And as much as I love Stamets and really want him to, you know, be happy. I would be fine if this this was the last Stamets and Colbert scene. As weird as it was, I thought it did a really good job of the two of them coming face to face after spending a couple episodes, you know, not speaking to one another and giving each other awkward glances across the cafeteria and basically saying, "Yeah, this is a weird situation. I understand as heartbroken as I am that we need to move on." And I mean, assuming that Hugh actually moved on to the Enterprise, even though we didn't see it, it seems like they might be done for good. Oh, but I'm so tired of this prolonged breakup. I feel like we haven't made any progress on it. Like We haven't moved emotionally from that very moment when Colbert comes back. I feel like we haven't progressed beyond that at any point this season. We just keep rehashing the same scenes over and over again where 
they sort of, they talk to each other and it's like, oh, we're kind of supposed to make it work. And Stamets is like, I really want to make it work. And Colbert's like, but I'm not that guy anymore. And we've had the same conversation so many times. I can't imagine we're done with it yet. I think we've got to get, and of course, you know, I, I did spoil myself a little bit, um, noting that Wilson Cruz is supposed to be back next season. So I don't see a way in which he doesn't somehow find himself back on that ship before they go into the future. Maybe it's his relative in the future. Maybe it's just that Wilson Cruz is always going to pop up in some sort of weird, unconventional way. But, I mean, on your note, I felt like this scene was emotional, as they say, forward motion. As you said, Stamets was sort of in this weird period where he really was mourning the loss of his relationship and why can't it just go back to the way it was And I think he was able to come to the unfortunate conclusion that it's not going to be the way it was. I need to move on. Can I say there was a lot of character development on Colbert's part? Not necessarily. It is kind of weird that we saw Jet Reno tell him, like, hey, you know what? People like us, you know, need people like them. And he didn't really seem to take that advice to heart. Maybe it's the way she approached him in the sickbay. But he's just like, yeah, I'm going to be on the Enterprise. Uh, You do you. TTYL, nice meeting you, bye. Yeah, well, maybe that's what it is. It's that I don't feel like Colber, I think Stamets has gone through a few emotions and I think he's, he's moving forward, but Colber is just not enough of a guy. He's not enough of a character that I think, I think I liked him before he died, but since he's come back, he just feels like, it's almost like he went to the pet cemetery and he came back and sometimes dead is better. Exactly. We got to go to the John Lithgow mycelial man and say like, no, dead should be dead. I want to put him back in the ground. Yeah, it's like he's not, he really isn't the same guy, but I don't know what guy he is. He just feels like an empty shell. Well, it's tough because, again, the scenes that we saw of them after that big episode in the network were much more about like, he's moody. He's clearly not himself. There was even point in time this episode when michael does her personal log when she says the line i i'm not you know i'm not who i am right now and it's cut to colber you know just looking in the mirror or so and i feel like that's what we know about colber he's not the same as he was before and that's about it outside of him you know like liking to uh get into fight clubs with ash tyler behind the scenes i can't really think of much about him and that's another reason why i was fine with colber going off on the enterprise if it comes to like you know, dedicating more time to fewer characters. I'd rather have that than to have a giant ensemble of people that we only know marginally about. I know that's probably the direction that Star Trek is going to go in, to your point about Wilson Cruz coming back in whatever role it may be, but I was ready to move on from this. Much like I sort of feel the same way about the Ash Tyler-Michael Burnham relationship as well. Uh, I felt like as unconventional and great as this relationship was, it really did feel like the characters were very emotionally true in this moment of like, all right, it's time to move on. And hopefully the writers, you know, will take the hint as well. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just glad to see someone acknowledging the fact that they only had 45 minutes because <laughs> nobody else was really shaking a leg there. Yeah. It does seem that there was a lot of people rushing around, you know, Tilly was grabbing her snow gloves. Michael Burnham's just sauntering around and, you know, pontificating on everything. Uh, meanwhile, you know, maybe Sarek, that's what Sarek saw, was just the, the doom and gloom in her mind, and that's what called him to eventually make his way over to the ship. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. Was- everything's a 45-minute drive away. Apparently, they're 45 minutes from Vulcan, too. 
Yeah, what did you think about the uh, the final appearance of Sarek and Amanda, who is rocking the black, by the way? Yeah, they, they looked terrific. Um, and I thought it was a very emotionally powerful conversation, although I didn't quite buy that it's like, oh yeah, Spock doesn't want to talk to you, so that's why Spock is not here in the scene. <laughs> I felt like they needed to try for some closure with Spock as well. So that was a little strange to me. And it was also a little strange. They just sort of hopped in their shuttle and got there before before the Enterprise and before Control. It was like, oh, yeah, we are super fast. Like, maybe you want those guys piloting your ship. Maybe they were just stopping over at Sahia for a quick, you know, ice cream social. I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, I think that it was interesting that we started the episode with uh, Sarek on the beach and just <laughs> saying Mike. Because, like, Michael wasn't really in any trouble at that point in time. I feel like if this had started off the second half with Michael Burnham about to go into a wormhole, maybe that would make more sense. But I can understand. I totally agree with you that I see the emotional weight of the scene. It would have been interesting to bring Spock in because I feel like that would have been so meaningful to have this really broken family reunited for like one hot second. I guess we got it a bit in the caves when Spock was freaking out. But this would have been a moment where... They all sort of awkwardly look at each other, acknowledge that they do love each other in spite of the circumstances, and then go off on their merry way. I mean, when we saw the aforementioned loved one montage, Spock did not say anything to his parents. Well, he's a Vulcan. Like, what's he going to (laughs) say? We had memories together. I feel acceptable gratitude for your role in bringing me to the point where I am at today. Uh, You may rent my room out. To anyone who might come by. <laughs> yeah, so we'll we'll see. And it's also another uh interesting little loophole on that note about if our if our theory about season three being discovery only stranded in the future, that means Spock has to get off the ship in some way, shape, or form because uh he's unless there's a clone Spock, mirror universe Spock shaved his goatee and got onto the Enterprise with Pike, he's supposed to be on that ship and right now he's on Discovery ready to risk his life. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Spock gets off the ship somehow. Yeah, I know there's a big theory out there how, you know, when Reno grabs the uh, the crystal, she sees uh, an undetonated torpedo stuck in the Enterprise's hole. People are convinced that Spock is in that torpedo for some reason. The Spock-pedo is a thing, apparently. <laughs> what did you make, by the way, of, of the, uh, the crystal, mystic crystal revelations uh, with, you know, we saw it a bit ago with Pike. With Michael and Jet grabbing the crystal, is it sort of like, is it the Pike rules that was given to him last episode that, like, no matter what, they can't change this future? It's going to happen no matter what? It's hard to tell. I think it was more like we saw that same scene twice because Michael, when Michael saw it, she said, okay, I need to change this. And then Jet seeing it again says that anything Michael decided between seeing that vision and Jet seeing the crystal didn't affect the timeline. So whether that means they've just sealed their fate by touching the crystal or they just need to try harder to change the timeline, I think that's kind of up for debate. Yeah, I agree with that. It was a bit uh, Oedipal on Michael's part, thinking that she can prevent this outcome, which was pretty brutal, even by Star Trek Discovery standards, that Leland just guns down Anton Chigar style all the Discovery crew members, including Michael Burnham, uh, with those interesting-looking new phasers. Maybe they're Section 31 brand. But it, it is interesting that in Jet pulling that crystal for that hot second, it is an interesting moment of self-sacrifice where she's like, go, 
I'll still stay behind and handle the crystal. And she seems to see basically that, you know, the torpedo and how basically to your point, nothing's been changed yet. So as much as Michael is trying to prevent her crew getting taken out, and that's the reason why I think she wanted to go alone, she, they're still on that path right now that ends in there completely getting wiped out. Though maybe she has knowledge of that and is almost fine with that. If she feels like that's the future, no matter what, if she feels like she can lead Leland down a dead end and sacrifice herself along the way, that would be to the betterment of sentient life overall. Yeah. And again, that's a very Starfleety way of thinking. It's like the needs of the many, et cetera, et cetera, or the one. Yeah. Exactly. Just fill in the blanks where you will. It would be interesting if I know the plan is just for Michael and Discovery to go in there. But if Leland's able to make his way onto the ship as it goes there, that would be a very interesting situation, considering that now they have, you know, an enemy on board. But he is sort of outgunned at this point, considering that he left all his cronies behind. Yeah, well, it would be great if they just like stuck him on the ship and like went into the future it's like oh they're just kind of kicking the can down the road 950 years yeah that's very true just kicking the very nicely buffed can down the road yeah oh we don't have to worry about control now for quite a while like we could just keep on keeping on yeah or maybe control gets put into the system and control becomes zora fully assembled that could be i think we've heard that we've heard that theory bandied about quite a bit lately not just that um it's control, but that Zora is discovery plus the sphere data and like marinating it for a little while. Wow. The sphere data has really changed discovery, Jess. I, I, I just, like discovery was so cool before and now it's turning down missiles. It's not exploding anymore. I, I can't even recognize discovery. Yeah. Discovery is just like, I, I feel like I need to end my relationship with discovery and like go accept a position on the enterprise. Yeah, I mean, listen, Enterprise is the hot new thing now. Now that the Sphere data is taking over Discovery, it's being it's being like a like teenage Poe. It's been really like, no, I'm not gonna explode. I feel like I feel like I'm the meme now of the of the like distracted boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're like, and the Enterprise's nicely buffed bridge is the one walking towards the camera, and poor little Discovery bridge. Is the one uh, just glaring at you being like, why are you looking at that? You should be paying attention to me. It's been two seasons. Yep. Yep. But, you know, if if you want us to keep loving Discovery, don't launch 900 spinoffs. <laughs> Listen, uh, they're launching spinoffs like Nanobots and Dippin' Dots, and they're going to infiltrate us. I mean, if they make this creative decision like I hope they do next time, that'll really be a game changer. And it'll really set it apart, I feel like, from the other series, which, you know, Picard is taking place after the, the timeline of The Next Generation. I think something that didn't necessarily help Discovery is that it really is now stuck in the middle of the timeline. So it was hard to really differentiate itself because it was still in this canon that people still sort of, you know, uh, associate itself with. And it has benefits and drawbacks to that. But I think setting it off on its entirely new course, considering how it's an entirely new show, tone-wise and structure-wise, would make a lot of sense. And as much as we as we lampoon these, we shall see what's to come with these. I, I'm excited for it. Though, of course, that also brings up the loophole of how are they going to get Giorgio back to lead this new Section 31 spinoff? Unless it's about Giorgio rebuilding Section 31 in the distant future. Maybe 
Maybe the episode next week starts with some reason to get both Giorgio and Spock off of the ship and off to their respective other parts of the Star Trek universe. Like, maybe they go together. Mm, that would be interesting. Maybe she found a new partner instead of Ash Tyler. It's now uh, another brother-in-arms in Spock. That would be interesting. I mean, I, I, I did note that in Michael's worst-case scenario vision, Giorgio was there. Because Michael tried to grab Giorgio's pistol to, uh, to kill Leland to no avail. But maybe that's another thing that really sets the timeline off from what Jet Reno is seeing right now. As, as Giorgio decides to get off. I mean, I thought it was interesting that she stuck around, too, considering how interested she is in taking Leland to the end of the universe and watching the nanobits bots leave his skin piece by piece. You think she'd want to be around for that? Yeah, or maybe she's hoping somebody will just, like, shoot a good video. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, hey, you know what? DVR it for me. When I come back, I'll watch it with you, and you can do the nice commentary over it to make me feel like I was there. And you can watch it over and over again. Yeah, exactly. And you can pause it if you need to go to the bathroom. Like, you won't be missing anything. Yeah, it's, that's, it's true. But yeah, I think there is a point where I think we get them off the ship, because if we don't get them off the ship, there's a lot of a lot of question marks around that. Like maybe maybe the other Giorgio comes back. I don't know. But one thing I thought was a little bit weird was in the moment where we see this vision of everybody dying, Michael Burnham has the biggest meltdown over seeing Giorgio die. And it's like, no, that's not your Giorgio. That's like the awful mirror universe one that like made you eat a Kelpian and you don't have any relationship with this person. She's mostly made your life harder. Yeah, it's a weird relationship. We even see it in this episode where it really does feel like Giorgio has become her surrogate mother, where she's saying, like, I cannot believe you're, you know, uh, submitting yourself to become a galactic rubber band and risking your life for all of this. And Michael's like, yeah, I'm doing it. Like, screw you, mom. I'm walking You're not off. my real mom. Exactly. Like, I'm, I'm going to I'm I'm going off to do this and you can't stop me. So it's interesting that she has you know, built such a personal relationship with her, you would think that the one person she'd freak out about would be Saru, considering how close and complicated their relationship has been, to see the guy who finally makes permanent captain get gunned down 30 minutes after doing so would just be criminal in so many ways. Yeah, and they have a relationship that feels relatable, and also she ate him in another universe, so there's yeah. that too. Once you eat someone in another universe, you feel really tied in. Speaking of Saru, he has Serana's knife. Do we feel like that's Chekhov's knife, Jess? Do you feel like it's going to be used in some way, shape, or form next episode? Well, given everything that has happened to Saru this season, given like how he gives zero Fs, given like he's about to become the captain, he's going to stab somebody real good with that knife. I'm really excited for it. I loved in uh you know the 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 Kaminar episode when Saru was badass with his little spikes. Like I want to see more Doug Jones fighting scenes because they must be fantastic to watch and considering what post Vahari Saru is like, I feel like it's totally in character. It's going to be like watching um that scene at the end of Game of Death where Bruce Lee fights Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> yeah, basically it's all gangly. Uh, gangly and ganglia. Uh, but I, I do think, I think it's going to come out in some way, shape, or form. Hopefully, it doesn't mean that Saru gets stabbed with his own sister's knife. I feel like that might be a too, less Star Trek and more Game of Thronesy. but I feel like it's coming out in some way, shape, or form next time. And it'd be fun as well to use the supernaturalistic primal knife to destroy, you know, the advanced piece of technology that might be control. 
I, w- I would love to see that. I, I did think it was kind of funny that it goes back to what we say about everybody's quarters and how everybody has one personal item in their quarters and everybody evacuating. They're not taking any bags with them. Is this why everyone on Star Trek only has one personal item in case you have to evacuate? You don't want to bring a bunch of stuff with you? And everybody's like, oh, Saru, you're supposed to leave that in your quarters. You're not supposed to bring any luggage. Why are you carrying around a big-ass knife? Yeah, pack lightly, I suppose. Though I guess Tilly broke that rule because she's grabbing the picture of her and Michael. She's grabbing a couple of those snow globes that apparently she's a big fan of so leave it to tilly to be unconventional but yeah it is a good point that everyone seemed to be you know milling around i mean god forbid if they had to stay on the enterprise i can't imagine that the enterprise people would love to each have a roommate basically if they had to intercept the entire crew of the discovery yeah it's like all of a sudden you've got this roommate and she's got all these snow globes and (laughs) although it's funny This is, again, speaks to the evolution of Tilly, and I choose to believe that this is the character evolving in an organic way. But Tilly of the first season, first few episodes, was deeply weird and had no social game. And now it's like, oh, she made besties with this one random person who stowed away on the ship a couple months back. And conveniently forgot to mention it to anybody and now it's like Tilly's magical powers of friendship are going to save the the whole galaxy yeah it is interesting because i mean that short trek i think taught her that she has these unique capacities of leadership through empathy i would say considering how feral of a creature poe was and she was able to connect with her through their as she says her shared love of engineering and of sugary foods which i don't think even someone like pike would be able to do. And I think her unique style of leadership, as Poe says this episode, is going to work out great for when she eventually has her own crew. So that does, I think, form character growth. I mean, I think her even talking to her mom and saying, you know, I don't know if you'd be proud of me, but I'm proud of me, is a far cry from the super awkward snoring girl that we saw in the first few episodes of Star Trek Discovery. It's also a really interesting thing where I feel like in the past, Captains and ensigns have had very interesting relationships given, you know, the hierarchy of things. I think, unfortunately, due to this rotating cast of captains, we haven't really gotten that. But it's always fun to have Tilly sort of poke her head around the corner and interrupt things. Uh, You know, the the sort of open, closed conversations that go on the bridge when she has knowledge of something that would be of use. Yeah, it's a very... Interesting role, and I think it's better done than, for instance, like a lot of how we handled Wesley Crusher in the same capacity. Yeah, well, Wesley Crusher would be like, I have this idea. Like, Wesley Crusher, especially in the first couple seasons, would have snuck away to the transporter room and beamed Poe up himself and then just brought him aboard without actually saying anything. Tilly, at least, has the etiquette to present the idea to the captain. And for what it's worth, except for that whole May incident where she ended up accidentally yelling at yelling at Pike, uh, she's been, you know, batting a thousand when it comes to presenting her ideas to the upper management. Yeah, she's definitely got better ideas than Giorgio. Yes, who just said, hey, you know what, let's blow up a supernova, let's in- invoke a supernova and put millions of lives, basically wipe out planets of people just to uh, help our plan along. She's basically going to Alderaan the, the crap out of them. I, I mean, it's also interesting that I think... I mean, they have to know that this is not the real Emperor Jojo, right? Because there's not even a trace of the old Philip or Jojo left. They'd be like, wow, retirement has really done a number on you. You were very bloodthirsty. Yeah, did, did your ganglia fall off too? Yeah, exactly. Like, what's, what, what was your Vaharai? Where, was, where were those ganglia? Do I necessarily want to know that? But, 
Yeah, she totally has a complete attitude shift, but I do love the writing of her, particularly in this episode. Again, a fun little lampshading moment where she is <laughs> viscerally disgusted by the orange motif on the Enterprise. Yeah, she is a lot of fun. and But I do think like everybody around her has to know that she is not... You know, she's she's deeply weird. Like she's got to be something's not right with her. And I did so the, I did like the exchange that she has with Pike. She's like, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm from your mirror universe. And he's like, oh yeah, I I don't know what you're talking about. Wink. Yeah, I I love that exchange because again, it's quintessential Pike. And again, even though it's not the last thing we'll see him do, it was if we could say this that was a wrap on Anson Mao. It totally makes sense. It's very like swoony and sarcastic but also very cocksure at the same time so i guess are we inferring from that do we think michael told him off camera do you think he just inferred it based on the way she was behaving like what when do we think that pike found out about her true origin i feel like pike is so cool it's like he didn't have to learn it he just sort of knew it which is a little bit off-putting from a writing standpoint but I guess it makes sense for the character. He's just sort of above all of that, like having to learn things and acquire knowledge. Well, I guess also the question is, so he got briefed by Cornwell and Starfleet about what happened to Lorca, or just Lorca as a person, before coming aboard Discovery, right? Depending on his level of access, do we think Cornwell could have told him about the true nature of Lorca, which made him realize that there was a mirror universe? That could be. And the mirror universe doesn't seem like a thing that most people would randomly – it's not a conclusion most people would randomly come to. Like, they're not even supposed to know the mirror universe exists, are they? Yeah, I mean, there are no, like, conspiracy theorists on YouTube in the 23rd century talking about how there must be a mirror universe. Like, the only people that knew are the Discovery crew – uh, you know, the, the heads of Starfleet, considering how they utilize Giorgio in the season one finale, and the poor deceased crew of the ship that switched places with, uh, you know, mirror Lorcas. Oh, that's that's rough. Feel bad for them. Yeah, so I think that maybe that could have happened, or maybe to your point, he's just observational enough. Uh, but I do believe, was that a callback to the first, was it to Mirror Mirror from Star Trek TOS as well? I believe there's like an exchange where they say like, oh, you know, we never had this conversation never happened. And Kirk says, what conversation? Like, it feels very much on that note of, OK, you know, it's it's a little uh, the mirror universe is under the table. We don't make mention of it in person. Yeah, I think that's what it's supposed to be giving a nod to for sure. Mm-hmm. So I guess I mean, I cannot believe the finale is next week, especially the way that we leave things. I mean, it really looks like it's just going to be a battle heavy episode of Discovery before Michael and Discovery go through the wormhole, and then God knows what happens. If they pull a loss, though, and she goes through the wormhole and that's the end of the episode, I do not know how I'm going to feel about that. Man, that's like a Walking Dead finale. Yeah, exactly. Or it would turn out that, like, uh, you know, Spock had died, but because he hid under a shuttlecraft, he was able to actually become alive, only to die, like, two seasons later. Something like that. But... I think I think we have to imagine there's going to be some kind of cliffhanger tacked onto the end of this episode. And I think it is fair to note all of the old school TNG fans that said we had to wait four months after Riker instructed the ship to fire on the Borg. Yeah, I mean, that will still forever and always be 
the biggest real-time cliffhanger, one might say, in television history, considering the circumstances behind it. I don't know. I mean, it is interesting that they have a season three guaranteed, so maybe with that knowledge, they'll be able to wait a bigger cliffhanger in it. The cliffhanger for season one wasn't huge comparatively. It was just, hey, they're in front of the Enterprise. You know, it, maybe they had said, like, ooh, there are these signals popping up. That would have been a bigger mystery. But a lot of the the biggest question was, what are they going to do aboard the Enterprise? I wonder if they're going to create one big sort of image to finish off the season, or if, to your point, they really are going to say, like, okay, we're turning the ch- the page into a new chapter, and that's really going to leave it at a moment of everyone sort of maybe in a moment of peril or just completely looking into the precipice of a new adventure. Yeah. I think they like to, I, I think they liked that tone of like, here's the next thing up on the horizon. We're just going to set it there. We don't want to make you like go crazy thinking about what's going to happen, but we want to get you excited. So I think putting the enterprise at the end of last season was a really great way to do that. So I want something that big and that cool, but I need closure on this before I get that. So we don't know how far into the future that they might jump right now. Remind me, when does Voyager take place? What if they jump and we see, you know, older Captain Janeway meet them and intercept them? Would it just be a crazy thing where every season of Discovery ends with them just running into a different ship from Star Trek past? I do like that, although... Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager kind of happen all on top of each other. Like they sure almost they aired at the same yeah, time. Yeah, they almost spin off of each other in um, interesting ways. Like Deep Space Nine, in fact, had an episode where Dr. Bashir shows up um, on the Enterprise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. TNG had yeah. yeah, it, was, yeah. it was another another two yet another two part right. was when Doctor Bashir showed up to teach Data how to dream or something like right. that. Right. And then at the beginning, the pilot episode of Voyager has them leaving from Deep Space Nine and having cast members from Deep Space Nine involved. So I think all of those take place in one chunk, and I think wherever we're going, it's got to be past that because they're still going to make that look hella cheesy. Do you think they're going to jump to the Gabriel Burnham anchor point, or do you think it might be another point entirely? I think it makes sense to jump to the Gabriel Burnham anchor point because we haven't resolved that. Like we need to resolve Gabriel Burnham. That's one of the that's one of the loose ends that needs to be tied up in the next episode. So I imagine we see her again, even if it's just to send her back to the point where we know she dies. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that it also would explain why the second signal appeared above Terralisium. It wasn't just to, just to give up those people a dose of truth, but considering that that is where the anchor point was from Gabriel Burnham, it would make sense to familiarize the time travelers with the place they'll be going to. Yep. That 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 makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm not mad at going back to Terralisium a little bit. That's an interesting yeah. place. Especially 950 years in the future, we'll see exactly what, you know, are they still going to sort of be in shambles or will Pike's telling them about the universe actually change the way that they, you know, the the way they uh, adjust themselves? What is the future even going to look like in 950 years? That's why I'm really hoping and hopefully I won't put too much weight on it because who knows, maybe it'll be a completely different thing. I'm I'm excited to be surprised no matter what happens. Yeah, I am as well. So, Mike, there's one more thing that I feel like we need to discuss before we shut the book on this and get ready for the finale. And this is all down to a Twitter conversation that you and I were having with several other listeners of various podcasts in our universe. 
Uh, we spoke earlier today. We had a very fantastic rendition of the Amazing Race theme sent our way with lyrics. And then we talked a little bit about our favorite theme songs with lyrics that are, that we've created ourselves because these theme songs themselves do not have lyrics. So, mm. Mike, my question for you is, if the Star Trek Discovery theme had lyrics, what would those lyrics be? It's tough because there are so many different motifs going on. It's the bum bum, bum bum, bum bum, and then it gets a little more fast paced. So I could be like disco, disco, disco. Like you don't want to go for the full discovery. Maybe you could do it with the characters' names. I don't know. We could definitely workshop it. It's it's a it's a tougher theme song than the other ones comparatively. The other ones use like a central recurring tempo and melody this other one sort of darts between a bunch of different varieties yeah and it was just unfortunate that enterprise never had a theme song oh yeah it never existed especially not one with heinous vocals and questionable lyrics and not rod stewart yeah exactly never happened it got that got erased from the timeline we picked up the crystal and we saw that and we said no thank you and promptly destroyed it did not recrystallize that but I mean, maybe we'll, we'll workshop something. We still have one more episode. If listeners out there want to come up with something, let us know. It, it, I feel like this theme song is a bit of a bigger challenge than, you know, the, the other theme songs of the past, excluding, excluding Enterprise, which doesn't exist. Well, hey, if I could come up with lyrics to the Person of Interest theme song, I could do this. Ooh, what is that one? Uh, it just, we're, on, we're in the CBS umbrella. I feel like it's, it's appropriate. <laughs> I guess it's appropriate. It just went person of interest, person of interest, person of interest. All right. That's all you need, really. Yeah, it's the title of the show, and you just put it in there. I, I think it does the job of really showing you, hey, this is the theme song for Person of Interest. You'll always remember it because you just keep repeating the title of the show. Yeah, exactly. Same with Law and Order. Exactly. I, I, I will see if we can come up with something. I'll, I'll have to listen to it a couple of times. Uh, maybe try to come up with different parts for the different. Because again, if, if it's setting itself apart from other Star Trek series, maybe it'll have more complicated lyrics and actually tell a story, a serialized theme song, if you will. It's like a multi-part canon, and then you just got the like the main leitmotif on the top. Star Trek, Star Trek, Star Trek. Yeah, well, then at the end is when it goes into the more of the original theme song of the Star Trek. Yeah. It's time for Star Trek. Disco! <laughs> time to watch. <laughs> I, I like it. I, I, I'm hoping that out there in the Twitterverse, people will help us continue to shape this idea. Yes, it's, it's a, we are just merely planting the seed and hopefully the other nanobots can go out and do our work across the Internet populace. Yep, it's like a giant virus taking everything over. <laughs> all right. So we appreciate everybody sticking with us through all of the madness that is this incredible show and the incredible podcast about the show. Um, we love hearing from you guys, however you want to communicate with us, you know, get on the, you know, get on the holograms. We still have those. Yeah. We're, we're not, we're not cool. Like the enterprise, which just stripped them all out. Apparently. Maybe that's for the best. Um, get on there and send us your messages as though you are about to go 950 years into the future and you don't know what's going to happen. We love hearing any kind of communication you have for us. You can reach us at poshorecaps.com, find the page for the episode and leave us a comment there. That's great. Uh, rate and review us in iTunes. Make sure you've subscribed because we like that as well. And you can always, always reach us on Twitter. You can reach me at HaymakerHattie. You can reach me at a Mike Bloom type. And Jess, while this is winding down, I know that 
we are getting about to prepare to embark on our own journey on another show over on the main Rob has a podcast feed. Uh, no rest for the wicked. Uh, Amazing Race starts up next Wednesday right after Survivor. And Mike Bloom and I will be with Rob Sestronino every Friday in your podcast feeds talking about everything that happened on The Amazing Race and hopefully some extra surprise content too. Although this is going to be an action-packed week for us this week. So probably not any extra content next week. Yeah, and it'll be fun because we will be captainless in the uh, the first installment due to Rob being away on an away mission. So Jess and I will be able to pilot our own shuttlecraft for the premiere of The Amazing Race. And considering the cast and what fun and excitement and chaos Amazing Race provides, it's going to be a fun week of conversations about various television shows with you, Jess. Yeah, talk about the crossover event of the century. I, I don't even care if we ever see any Voyager cast members on Discovery because we're getting Survivor people on Amazing Race. Yeah, then we might need to do a podcast then over, depending on how long the offseason lasts, of uh, Star Trek Amazing Race. You know, if we put Next Generation versus Voyager versus Enterprise versus Discovery, who's going to reign supreme? Hey, you know... I did Amazing Race of Thrones once upon a time, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and then it turned out that the very worst people won, which is about how Amazing Race usually goes. So I guess that tracks. Um, and of course, Game of Thrones is coming back this week, and Rob and Josh will be covering that on Post Show Recaps. It's going to be very, very fun. Yeah. I mean, this is a as, – as one, you know – Big monolith of a franchise winds down for the season. Another one is ramping up for its final installment. So be sure to check out that. Check that out. They're doing at least two shows over here on Post Show Recap. So we are going to the past, to a mystical universe, and we're also going up to the stars. Post Show Recaps is just showing how far television takes you in this day and age. Right. Um, it it will take us far into the future. Get on your time suits and jump ahead. And no matter where you are. There will probably still be some podcasts in your feed you haven't listened to yet. And Dippin' Dots. Oh, Dippin' Dots. <laughs> oh, so on that horrible note, um, we will see you all back here next week for the finale. Thank you all for listening and have a great night. This post-show recap of Star Trek Discovery comes to us thanks to our friends at True Car. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. The luxury package you got after a big promotion. The giant cube of salvage that contained only your ship and none of the robotic squid probe you picked up from the time rift. Or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car you can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof, watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you could take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer not available in all areas.